I'll be reading out of the uh, NIV this morning. The scripture is from Mark 11, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethanage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it, and many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went on to Bethany with the twelve. Thank you, Mark. Let's pray together before we study God's word. Father, you've taught us that your word is uniquely powerful and that it actually accomplishes your purposes for you in us. I pray that that would happen among us this morning. and Please just give us open hearts that will receive it and be changed by it. Let us be be transformed by the renewing of our minds this morning. Please give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And please help me to serve your people well and to just make plain what's here. Help us not just to understand it, but to be transformed by it. And we look to you for this, and we're, we're listening for your voice now in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the text, I and several others among us went to the, um, the Piedmont Conference annual meetings yesterday in Lenore. And so I had, uh, among a lot of other things, the opportunity to see people and things like that, talk about what the Lord's doing among us as a conference. But another opportunity that it gave me was the opportunity to sit in a pew for a long time. And that's, I don't, as your pastor, I don't do that that often. I don't have to. <laughs> I get to be up and about and I'm, you know, engaged with, with it. And I stand here while I speak. And it was a reminder of how difficult it is to sustain attention sitting in a church pew for a long period of time. Now, this isn't going to be a long, long sermon. I'm not preparing you for that. But I, I understand. I sympathize. Um, I promise you that I would not stand up here and waste your time and have you sit in that pew You've had a busy week, a hard week, I can guarantee. You're tired, I would imagine. You're maybe hungry. I promise you, this passage is extremely important to you now, right now. It's a a narrative passage, so it reads almost like a historical account, but it's not just a history lesson. This is God's living and active word, and it is extremely important to us now. Um, So... 
let's approach it like that. I'll do my best not to be boring. And I pray the Holy Spirit would help us to, to genuinely sustain attention to his word for, for a little bit here. I want to set the scene. We're returning to Mark. Uh, we've been returning to Mark every spring and winter as we get, start moving toward Easter and as we start moving toward Christmas time. Every year we're returning to Mark, working our way through. And we're, it's our first Sunday back. We find ourselves in Mark chapter 11. Mark is one of the four Gospels. Now, I've presented the Gospels to you before, like biographies of Jesus. They're not exactly biographies of Jesus. I've, uh, I've learned a little bit since I first have said that to you. They're more like memoirs of the apostles put together with a very specific theological purpose. So their purpose is not so that we can know everything about the life of Jesus. That's why we don't see a whole lot about his childhood. There's a lot that's missing. The purpose of the Gospels is not biographical, it's theological. And each Gospel writer put together the facts and teachings of Jesus for specific purpose. And it was so that the readers of these Gospels would see that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Lord, that he is the Savior. Okay, so as we approach Mark, that's what we're approaching. It's, it's probably mainly taken from Peter's eyewitness accounts of Jesus most likely copied down by Mark, and the purpose is so that we would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, the tension has been building. We don't quite feel it because we're jumping back in now at chapter 11, but when we first began three years ago, I don't know if I should tell you how long we've been in it because then you might grow restless, but we began about three years ago, and the tension has been building as we've been moving forward to this point. Jesus called his disciples He began healing people, performing miracles, casting out demons, and teaching with authority that no one had ever experienced before. Teaching with the very authority of God himself. And as he did, the crowds grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And his fame spread and spread and spread. Also, while he went about his ministry doing these things, the religious authorities, the Jewish religious authorities began to dislike him more and more and more and more because he was challenging their authority. And so you have the crowds growing and you have the conflict growing. And it all has been growing toward this. Chapter 11 is a turning point in the book because he's going to enter Jerusalem. So if, you're, if you remember, he has three different times told the disciples before this, we're headed to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. I'll read to you uh, one of those times. I can't remember if I put that to be projected or not. Um, If not, you can just listen. This is Mark chapter 10, and I'll read verses 33 and 34. He's talking with his disciples, and he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So this is where he's going and why he's going there. They're headed to Jerusalem, and this is what he knows is going to happen. And he's been trying to prepare his disciples for it. Our passage today is him entering Jerusalem for this purpose. So the stage is set for something really big to happen. Jerusalem itself is a really important place to the Jewish people. It was, their, it was both their political capital, maybe something sort of like Washington, D.C. is to us, but it was also their religious center where the temple was. 
So Jerusalem was the central city in the history of the Jewish people. And they were entering at the time of the Passover. So they weren't the only ones entering. They were entering along with thousands of, of Jewish pilgrims who were coming for the Passover. So the, the atmosphere was highly charged already. It would have been similar to the um, religious fervor we Christians have at Easter time or Christmas, plus the crowds of the Super Bowl, all together at once entering into Jerusalem. So now we kind of have a picture of what we're entering into, and we'll divide our passage into three parts to help us keep keep logical track of where we are. The cult, the call, I'm sorry, the cult, the crowd, and the calm. And we'll start with the cult, verses 1 through 7. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, what is all this about this colt? If you remember Mark, he is, he is the most efficient of the gospel writers. It's just action, action, action. He zips through the stories, very little detail why is he slowed down to a stop and given all this attention to this colt so jesus got jesus grabbed a young donkey and rode in on it what is the big deal jesus fulfilled well over 300 prophecies from the old testament there were prophecies about how he would be born where he would be born uh, what his lineage was going to be what he would be like He also fulfilled a prophecy right here with this cult. It comes from Zechariah 9.9. And you don't have to flip to it if you don't want to. It is projected. But this is the prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus purposefully arranged to ride in in such a way as to publicly identify himself with this prophecy. Many of the prophecies about Jesus, he didn't directly control in this way, how, where he would be born. But here he is purposefully identifying himself with this prophecy. Even though he's entering into Jerusalem to be killed, he is doing it with intentionality. He knows exactly what he's doing and what's going to happen. And he's doing it in such a way as to proclaim to everybody around who would have known this prophecy, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Now, he enters in this way, fulfilling prophecy at this extremely heightened atmosphere. Now, let's look at the crowd and how he is received. Verses 8 through 10. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means something like, save now, salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now some things to know about this scene. It's extremely significant. But there is likelihood that they would have already been shouting these quotations from Psalm 118 anyway, as part of the festivities. When Jesus came through, part of it was crowds getting swept up in just what the crowd was doing. There's good reason to believe many of them didn't really understand what was happening and didn't really understand who this man was. They couldn't possibly have understood how significant what they were saying and how true what they were saying really was. But they recognized something was going on that had to do with salvation. That's what Hosanna is all about. Fulfillment of prophecy and royalty. The coming kingdom of our father David. Now if we look at Luke's account of this in Luke chapter 19 verses 41 and 42. We see that this scene wasn't all it appears to be at first. At first, it appears to be a great scene of people embracing Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 19, verse 41 and 42, we see it from a different angle. It says, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. They didn't really understand yet. And there's good reason to believe that many of this same crowd were shouting crucify him not much later. But we do understand. We have the full revelation of scripture. They were before the cross, but we're after the cross. And so we look back on it with greater understanding. And this is where I think it touches us most today. So if I have bored you with sort of the history lesson part of this, come back into focus now, because this is where it really has to do with your life right now. Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. What they were shouting was true. He is the long-awaited Savior, but not in the way that many people expected and not in the way that many people expect today. You know, if we were to take a, a poll of our church or even a poll of the community at large, and ask, what is the deepest need you have in your life right now? What sort of answers do you think would come up? If we were to do that poll in the church and you were asked, what is the deepest need you face in your life right now? Don't shout it out loud, but think about it. What would you write down? For these people, many of them very likely would have said, our deepest need is for the Messiah to come and... Relieve us from Roman oppression, and we need a political leader. That's what we need. Maybe some of you feel that way about America. My deepest need is political leadership. Finally, Trump's given it, or I wish somebody else was in there to give it. 
Maybe it's more personal. Maybe you feel that your deepest need is some relational issue within your family or financial issue with you or something like that or a medical issue. God went to great lengths to come to send his son, Jesus Christ, to solve our deepest problem. We can guarantee that the problem he solved is indeed our deepest problem. And he didn't solve the political problem for the Jews right then. And he doesn't immediately solve a lot of our circumstantial problems. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came so that he could get to the cross, so that he could die for your sins and my sins, so that our sins could be forgiven, we could be washed clean, and we could be reconciled to our God. The deepest need any human being who has ever lived has is for their sins to be removed from them so that they can be reconciled to God. And that's the problem he solved on the cross. I've had a lot of opportunity for counseling lately. Just a wide variety of counseling things going on and not even all within our church. And I can tell you that Everybody has stuff going on in their lives. It's amazing the variety of it. No two, it's like a snowflake. Our suffering is so unique. But everybody has things going on. And many, many people are involved in deep, deep darkness. Many people are entangled in sins that are just jet black, deep, dark Dangerous, evil, destructive sin. Many people are living their lives still haunted by the memories and regrets and guilt and shame from past involvement in deep, dark sin. In the midst of that, as a Christian pastor, as as one who has the good news of Jesus Christ, I get to explain to people that Jesus didn't didn't come to free the Jews from Roman oppression. He came to free you from that deep black darkness. He came to bring you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. All that sin that that perhaps if the person sitting beside you, if they really knew the things you have done, or if they really knew the things that have been done to you, that they, you feel that perhaps they would look at you differently, he knows all of that. He understands all that better than you do. And he loves you, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die so that that could be paid for, so that he could offer you full and complete pardon for what you've done wrong, so that he could completely, thoroughly cleanse you of all defilement from what you've done or what others have done to you, so that when he looks at you, if you're in Christ, he sees Jesus' pure perfection. And that's really good news because Jesus is the long-awaited Savior, even if he's not what they thought they wanted or what they were expecting. He is the long-awaited Savior. And that's good news for me and you right now, all these years later. Have you received that good news? We have to stop and ask. It's so easy to get caught up in churchy stuff You're here right now, and that's great, but I don't know if you're here because you've received that good news and you're here to worship God because you have a relationship with him, 
Or if you're here because this is what you and your family have always done. And in reality, you're still trying to justify yourself before others and before God by good works. The good news, the gospel of Christianity, isn't inductment into a a Christian social club where we just try to, to be better and do better. It's complete transformation. It's new life. New heart, new identity, new record with God. Have you received it? I pray that you have, and I pray that if you haven't, that the Lord will be making this clear in your heart right now and unavoidable. And that maybe even throughout the rest of this sermon, maybe this is where you need to to get off the train right here at this point, and you just need to be praying to the Lord right now and receiving this gift. I would love to talk with you about it afterwards, pray with you about it afterwards. There is nothing more important than this. Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. What was confusing about this for them was that much of the prophecy had to do with what sounded like a a political regime change, that he was going to be a king, bringing in a kingdom, and that this kingdom was going to make everything right for the Jewish people. Now, he did come as a king. In fact, his first message when he first began at the beginning of Mark, if you'll remember, and I'll read it to you. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, he first begins his public ministry. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. See, he did come to initiate the new age of the kingdom of God. So the Jewish people, they saw life in two ages, basically. The old age in which Satan and sin dominated everything, and the age to come in which God would be the ruler over everything, and righteousness would reign, and peace would come. They were confused when their Messiah, who they thought was this king that was going to bring in this new age, was killed on the cross. They didn't realize that that was the level at which he was going to be bringing peace. But he did come to initiate the kingdom. He began it in his earthly ministry, and he's going to return to fulfill it completely. He's coming back, and we're in this in-between time. It's already begun, but it's not yet fully in place. Now, this is something that I have always struggled to understand and wrap my mind around. It helps me to think about it like a classroom. I don't know why this has always helped me. Maybe it'll help some of you. So imagine you're in class, it's high school, or if you're actually in school, it's whatever grade you're in, middle school or whatever. So you get to school and... Maybe you're there early or maybe the teacher's coming in late, but all the students are there, but the teacher's not there. So what, what do you think would be happening? Everybody's just goofing off, hanging out, telling jokes, catching up, talking, making paper airplanes, throwing them. Okay, so have that classroom picture in your mind. Okay, now get later in the day, the teacher has come. The teacher has given you a project to do. He said, I want you to be working on this. I'm going to step out. 
kids ask, when are you coming back? So they know how long they have before they have to straighten up again. The teacher said, I'm not telling you, but I'm coming back. You need to get to work on this project. Teacher steps out. Okay, so now think about that classroom setting. What would be happening? Well, it would be a mixture of things. Let's not get too cynical. A lot of the kids might continue to goof off and take it as their cue to just, just hang out. Some of the kids would probably get to work on the project. Because the teacher is going to be checking in on this project when they return. Some of the really, really good kids would be diligently working on the project all the way until the teacher returns. See, we're in this second classroom right now. Jesus has come. He has taught. He has given us a project. He's saying, wait for the Holy Spirit. And when you get the Holy Spirit, go and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. I'm coming back. And we're in this classroom together now. And he's been gone so long. He's been gone a really long time. And so it is extra tempting for us to just goof off and live as if there is no teacher. There is no King Jesus. There's Savior Jesus that we can carry around in our pockets like a lucky rabbit's foot and rub when we need it. But there's no King Jesus. There's no reckoning It's too easy. It's too easy to forget he's coming back. We are citizens and ambassadors of a coming kingdom. The question for us here is, it's the question I've been wrestling with all week. Is Jesus' return a functional part of your worldview? Is the fact that Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, that he's going to return, is that part of your worldview? Does it affect the way you see your days, your weeks and your months, and your family and your co-workers and your challenges? Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the returning King. He's not a distant historical figure. It's not like studying George Washington. He's our king, our savior, our Lord, our king. We think way too much about lesser things. We think too much and talk too much about Donald Trump. He's going to be president maybe eight years maximum. Jesus Christ is the king of kings forever, eternity. This is a blip, a tiny speck. You know, the president leads us in a way that's mediated by massive layers of bureaucracy. We'll probably never meet him. His leadership will affect us, but it it comes through the sieves of all this bureaucracy and all these other people. There's a lot of insulation there. Jesus Christ is completely different. Jesus, our King, leads us each directly, intimately, and personally. If you are a Christian, he has picked you specifically 
pardoned your sins so that you could be given full citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And he's given you a part to play in his kingdom. He knows you. He cares about you. He's coming back. He arrived on a donkey, which symbolizes humility and lowliness and meekness, but he's not returning that way. I want to read to you Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is the vision that God gave to the Apostle John. And here he writes of Jesus' return in Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. The king that began his kingdom on a donkey, on a colt, returns on a white war horse. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the enemies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, and with it to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the long-awaited Savior, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the returning King. They didn't understand what all this meant. Do you understand? Do we understand? The final section we'll call the calm, verse 11, and back in Mark chapter 11. After he entered to this prophetic fanfare, it says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What an anticlimax that is. All this tension, all this buildup, all this fanfare, all this ruckus from the crowd. And then he goes in and looks around at the temple and checks things out. And then he goes home and he goes out for the night. Roman authorities weren't concerned about what was going on. They weren't hassling him at this point. Verse 11 reminds us of what today is like is an eerie calm. There's an eerie calm between what he initiated and what he's going to consummate when he comes back. Why has he been gone so long? What is taking him so long? Why is he waiting? You know, I read a fictional account of the early disciples and it was fiction, but the way they depicted the disciples was they were always looking toward the horizon because they genuinely thought, he's coming back. He's coming back any minute. But it's been a long time. Well, the Bible answers that question, and this will be our final passage. It's Second Peter chapter 3, or verse 9. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't he come back? Because of his patience and his desire that none should perish, but that many should reach repentance and be welcomed as citizens of the kingdom of God. Because when he comes back on the final day, the opportunity will be over. Every second that passes, even right now as we're sitting here, each second that ticks away on your wristwatch is an expression of his patience. Every minute that passes by is an expression of his desire that none should perish. Every hour that goes by is an expression of his wish that all should reach repentance. But the window of opportunity is closing. We don't know when it will finally be shut. But the next verse, verse 10, says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's a sobering, sobering passage. And I'm still, it still sinks into me. I, I pray that it will for us all. May we receive salvation and be ready for the return of the King and devote ourselves to helping others be ready as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, let it have its full effect in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives and in our church. Lord, if I have distorted the pure truth of your word in any way, I pray that you would just iron that out in our minds and that the Holy Spirit would make plain to us the implications of all this for our lives. Thank you for the good news that Jesus came on a colt and not a white war horse and that he died on the cross making a way for us to be reconciled to you and granted citizenship in your kingdom. Thank you. Help us to live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.